church? Acts 13, verse 13 is where we're going to be in just a moment. And uh, so the, the decor and the music were obviously uh, uh, on the Christmas theme a little bit today. So we've got that started, but the teaching series hasn't quite lined up with that. And uh, we're going to do one more message in Acts this morning here and then set that aside until January. We're going to jump into a new series next week that is for Christmas, the three weeks uh, heading into the Christmas uh, weekend. And that series is called Three Babies, One Promise. And uh, looking forward to looking at these uh, three births in the, uh, in the scriptures, two of which are prophetic of the third one, which is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Uh, I'm sure you can guess who that is. So we're going we're gonna to look forward to getting into that series next week. But for now, um, Acts 13. Uh, parents, I think, would say, I know, I know they would say this. Parents would say that they love their children, they love their kids so deeply, they couldn't imagine loving anyone more than they love their own kids. Uh, parents would also say there are times when they wonder where the little spawns of Satan came from. And you know what I'm talking about. And that, that little picture into human parenting uh, is a glimpse into what God goes through in parenting you and me. We are his deeply loved sons and daughters who have a propensity toward rebelling very freely against him. And in today's passage, um, speaking of God's own people, Israel, Paul says this in a sermon that he's preaching in this passage, and he says this, for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. And that phrase, God put up with them, is exactly how it's translated. God simply put up with Israel. He put up with his people. He, he patiently endured his own people. And he still is. That wasn't just something that applied to Israel, but that's you and me. I mean, God, is, God put up with you this past week. You might think you're God's favorite. But God put up with you uh, this week. Uh, he puts up with you. He puts up with me. He endures us. He bears with us. He, he, he demonstrates extraordinary, miraculous patience in the face of our failures and our frailties and even our foolishness. And, and we would ask the question, why? Why is God so patient with us? Why does he endure us? Why does he put up with us the way that he does? And, and it's simply because of who he is. The sheer force of his character overcomes every rebellion against him. And that's what we're going to see play out in the passage today. So let's turn our attention to that. It's Acts 13, 13 to 25. And you follow along in your Bible as I read. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with, with uplifted arm, 
he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Well, in that uh, passage, we have a little uh, narrative set up that I'll talk about in just a moment. And then the first part of a sermon that Paul preaches in this synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the thrust of what we're going to look at and see in this is this, this theme of God putting up with us. So God patiently puts up with me. Now, if you've looked ahead to the notes, you know that there are 10 points in this message. One of the elders said to me this morning, I don't think I've ever seen a sermon with 10 points in it. So folks, you're seeing history today. You get to be a part of it. That's exciting, right? You get to be part of history. I don't know if it's history or not. But before we get to the 10 points that I know you're super excited about, um, I want to set it up with this narrative portion at the beginning because Paul and his group, they sailed. We got the map up here because I know you're following along with this. Paul and the group sailed uh, from Paphos in, in Cyprus last week. They had landed in Cyprus and we saw them traverse the island. They came to Paphos and they had some success in their evangelistic efforts there. Now we see them moving on from, from Cyprus and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, which is in southern Turkey uh, today. We would call it Turkey today, Asia Minor at the time. And we have this notation here that John Mark, who was their helper who had come along with them, uh, John Mark um, left them and returned to Jerusalem. And what we can say about that with certainty is the kid couldn't hack it on the road. That's what we can say with certainty. The kid couldn't hack it on the road. And so he left the team and went back to Jerusalem. But there's absolutely no indication of why. What was it that caused John Mark to not want to finish the mission, but to head home? What we do know about this, we don't know why it happened. What we do know about this is two chapters from now in chapter 15, right at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that this created, this matter of John Mark leaving the team created a huge contention or what is called a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And those two guys split and don't work together ever again that we know of. And, and so this is a serious matter. We are going to come back to it. Um, later, a little bit later in the story. So they travel north. So it's Paul and Barnabas now. They travel north on what is called the Via Sebaste, which is an old Roman road um, built by the Emperor Augustus that, that cut up from Pergo and went straight up into 
uh, Asia Minor. This is what that road looks like today. So this road via Sebaste that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas traveled on, this road exists today. If you're traveling to Turkey, take one of the tours, you can go hiking along this trail. And it headed from the coast north and through those mountains that you see in the slide uh, on, the, on the left. Now, there were towns and villages all along the way, but there's no record whatsoever that Paul and Barnabas stopped at any of those villages to do any ministry, but that they went straight to uh, Antioch in, in, in Pisidia. Now, Galatians 4.13, which you can see on the map, this is all called the region of Galatia. So Paul and Barnabas did their ministry all in this area of Galatia. And then later he wrote a letter back to them called the letter to the Galatians. And in chapter four, verse 13, he actually says, I was sick. And, and so the commentators are suspecting that what happened is as soon as he landed at the port, uh, probably um, not feeling well, they said, you know what, Paul looks like you have COVID, but we don't have a test kit but it'd probably be good if we just traveled north and just got into the cool mountain air that's probably going to help you out. So that's what they did. Um, you can verify some of that. Some of that, those details are accurate and some of those are just um, added in for color. Um, so they made their way up to uh, Antioch in uh, Pisidia. Now, please note, this is a different Antioch than the Antioch that they left from, which was in Syria, which you can see way over on the right side of the map. You see Antioch there, and they had sailed down to Cyprus and then up to Perga and then up to a different Antioch. You say, why do people do that? And, and, and it's because of the certain emperor, and he conquered all these lands, and they were naming towns after him. They got super excited. No one checked to see any other towns were named after him. So we have two towns named for him. One, we just simply call Antioch Pisidia, and the other one Antioch. And so now they've headed north to Antioch Pisidia in that region. Now, once they got there, he obviously got better. The strategy was, and he always employed this strategy, was to go to the synagogues first. So verse, um, verse 14, they hit the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. And, and, they, and the text tells, they just went in and they sat down. They didn't present themselves as leaders. It's not that we're here to preach. They just went in and sat down to take part in the worship that day in the synagogue and to hear the scriptures uh, read. So, um, so they did that. And being itinerant teachers and Jews, Jewish itinerant teachers, verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers asked them, if it were possible, do you have a word of encouragement for the people? In other words, one of the two of them is being invited now to preach to the synagogue after the reading of the scriptures. Now, Paul had some pretty strong credentials. They would have known at this point, they wouldn't have invited him if they didn't know he's from Jerusalem. At least he spent time there. He's been educated there. He's a Pharisee of that party. He's been uh, schooled in the scriptures under uh, Gamaliel. So they know his credentials and they're inviting him now to get up and to, and to speak. So verse 16 says, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, kind of gets them to quiet down, I guess, and said, men of Israel. So he's addressing the Jews that are in the synagogue. And then he says, and you who fear God. So he's addressing the Gentile proselytes or the converts to Judaism from among the Gentile people. And he just says to them, listen. So that's the setup. That's the narrative setup of how we get to this synagogue on this Sabbath day. And Paul gets an opportunity to preach the gospel. And in this brief narrative, what we see Luke giving us in these few verses is both failure and success. There's failure and success here. The failure is John Mark 
abandons the team. This young man can't cut it. And yet even while he fails, Paul and Barnabas don't let that dissuade them. He's gone back, but they continue on with the, with the mission. And I love this idea as, 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 we, as we think of what Paul's preaching here. I love this idea that success and failure are always mixed together in our lives and ministry. We've been doing ministry here at Harvest for more, just over 22 years. And in the 22 years that we've been doing ministry, there's been a lot of success and there's been a lot of failure. And often those two things, the success and failure, often they were happening at the same time. I recall times where, where, where we felt like we were blowing it so badly and it was so difficult in the church and we were facing such crises and people were coming to Christ and new people were coming to the church and people were joining small groups and marriages were being put together. People were getting baptized in the midst of very difficult times in our church. Good things happened, we celebrated. Bad things happened, and God was still working. And it is always pointed to this one overarching reality, what the text is pointing us toward and what our history points us toward, is that God patiently puts up with me, God patiently puts up with you, God patiently puts up with us together as a church, because we do have a natural tendency to disappoint each other. I'm, I've been a disappointment to many people during the 22 years that I've been the pastor of this church. And many people that I've led have been a disappointment to me and a disappointment to us collectively. But we don't let that dissuade us from carrying on with the mission. The undercurrent behind all of this is that God is, is fully in control at all times. He works within the frailty of human agency. He does so with patience. He puts up with us, but always guiding the events, always moving his plan and purposes forward according to his will. And John Mark leaving the team in Perga, listen, that did not catch God by surprise. God knew it was going to happen. would not in any way, having John Mark leave, it would not in any way hinder the work that God was doing in that moment and in the days ahead. Because the mission has been, the mission is, and the mission always will be God's work through us and not our work with us inviting God to come along for the ride. This is the Lord's work. And the gold that we're going to mine out of this passage and this, this incident in Antioch, Pisidia, is that it's all God, it's all God, with God putting up with you and me. So that's, that's the setup for the 10 points. You guys are excited, right? History. I told you this is history. Here's the first one. He chooses. And I am chosen. He chooses and I am chosen. As Paul preaches, this is an Old Testament or a Hebrew scriptures savvy crowd. These are Jews who have been schooled in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. They are proselytes or converts who are schooled in the Holy Scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. 
and, and so he, he knows that they know these stories and he, he rehearses for them a number of episodes from their history. And it was very common for the early Christian missionaries, these preachers who went out to proclaim the gospel, it was common for them to sketch out a little bit of the history of Israel in their introductions because they were talking to Jews and to Jewish converts who knew the prophetic background, who knew the promises concerning Messiah, but who needed to know how God had kept his promise, had fulfilled his promise, had delivered on the messianic hope and had done so through the man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the part they didn't really realize. And so Paul is bringing this in this moment to them, starting with this little historical sketch that's going through. And by the way, as we go through this, you can almost guarantee that what Luke is giving us in Acts 13 is a summary of the sermon and not a transcript of the entire sermon. Almost certainly when Paul got up to speak, it would have been a much longer sermon. It, I don't know if it was 10 points, but I mean, it was a long, it would have been longer. And he would have been fleshing out details about every one of these little historical things that we only get one phrase or one sentence about. There would have been a lot more uh, to all of this. But he starts with this, verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, notice this, um, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. God chose the patriarchs, the ancestors, the ones who would become Israel. And God is in the business of choosing those whom he saves. And that's not easy for us to, to understand as human beings. It's hard for us to comprehend this idea that God chose us to salvation that God chooses these things, that he's sovereign over all of this. We see the whole thing, in fact, more from our own perspective. We, we hear more, we, we think more about free will because, we, and especially as Western thinkers, we like to think about our will. We like to think about our volition, that we choose these things, that we have a full agency over ourselves. We live in a culture that exalts freedom and personal liberties above pretty much everything else. And so for us to have an idea, to understand the biblical notion of God choosing us, this is really difficult for us to really get our heads around. We think about everything as being our choice, and that's fine. And that is also reflected in the scriptures. That's the thing that's hard for us to reconcile. For example, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we hear this from Paul, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord to be saved sounds like human free will. Like, like I heard, I went to a place and there was a preacher and I heard the gospel and I was in a desperate place and I considered what he said and I made the decision and I raised my hand or I walked the aisle and I went up front and I made the commitment. And it looks like it was my choice entirely. And that's what that scripture verse reflects. And that is accurate and that is biblical because that's what we see. But that's only our perspective of it. That's only our limited human ground level down here on earth perspective. Because we also read these verses and there's no possible way you can get around them. But Jesus said this to his disciples, John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I'm sure when Matthew was sitting at the tax collector table and Jesus walked by and said, follow me, he was like, I made the decision to follow him. He saw it as his free will, but God, in fact, had called him. Paul wrote this in Ephesians. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was created. 
Our names had been written in the Lamb's book of life. Peter, the apostle Peter said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And you can't come to any other conclusion but the fact that God chose us. How we reconcile that with human free will, I don't know. And I don't think we're going to figure that one out until we get to eternity. And I'm okay with that. The scriptures leave both of them there in tension. The bottom line is this, if you're saved, it's because God chose you. And one of our commentators uh, for this series, he says this, he makes the point that Israel, Christians, all believers are God's chosen people, not because of their innate goodness or superior spirituality, but because God freely chose them. And that's going to become important later in this message. Further, he, he not only chooses me, but he makes me great. And I receive his kindness. The first Old Testament narrative that he refers to is that of Israel in Egypt. And this story is told in Genesis 37 to 50. So to the end of Genesis and then into the book of Exodus. This is the story of Joseph. The, the Joseph narrative is that last part of Genesis. Joseph is the, the, the cherished favorite son of Jacob who had 12 uh, sons. And uh, this is the story of Jacob and his 12 sons and their families migrating from Canaan, the promised land to Goshen. And long before they became slaves of Pharaoh, because we know that's how it ends up, they prospered before becoming slaves. They prospered and they grew to be a nation, a strong nation, and not simply just one family. And God did that. God made the people, look at verse 17, continues there. God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And, and Paul wanted his listeners at this point, because they'd know the whole story. Paul wanted his listeners to remember that any good thing they had in their lives was from the Lord. Just as every good thing that Israel had in Egypt was from the Lord. Every good thing that you have in your life is from the Lord. Every good thing I have in my life is from the Lord. Every good thing that every Christian has in their life is from the Lord. In fact, God is so good. Every good thing that your unsaved neighbor, even ones who hate God and say so out loud, every good thing they have is from the Lord. That's common grace. And God blesses everyone with it, whether they acknowledge him or they acknowledge the gift or not. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, what do you have that you did not receive? If then, you, if, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are you taking the credit for stuff you have? James, the, the half-brother of Jesus and leader of the church in Jerusalem would write, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. We ought to receive his kindness. We ought to thank God for his kindness every single day of our lives. We should take nothing for granted. We should take no credit for any of it. That is the Lord. God gave me that. I give him the glory. I've been so blessed. And Paul's driving to a point with all of this, of course. He's, he's making his way down a path to reveal Jesus to these Jewish uh, listeners in the synagogue. And he says next, not only does God choose and make me great, but God leads me. He leads and I follow. 
Now, things did not continue to go awesomely for the Jews who were living in Egypt because another Pharaoh came along who didn't know the story, who didn't know Joseph, didn't remember these things, but did see that the Jews had so prospered that God had made them so great that they were now a nation within a nation and the Egyptian economy depended so much on what was coming out of Goshen that the Pharaoh became afraid that they might just up and leave. And so he enslaved them. But verse 17, right at the end, it says, but with uplifted arm, God led them out of that situation to freedom. And that's the story of the Exodus. And their part as Jews was simply to follow the way he was leading. And Paul's really showing how the Old Testament, how these stories point to the ultimate freedom that comes with Messiah's appearing. The question he wants his hearers to begin to consider is, will I follow? He's in that synagogue. He's preaching this message. He's leading them to a place. He's saying to them, our forefathers in Egypt followed the Lord out and to the promised land. And he's setting them up because in just a moment, he's going to say, you need to follow Jesus. You need to follow your Messiah. God is calling you out. It's going to be risky. It's going to be hard. It's going to challenge all your assumptions. It's going to move you out of your comfort zone, just like the Jews leaving Egypt was getting them to leave their comfort zone into a time of great challenge. And Paul's leading them right to that point. We all face the same question. Will I continue to go my own way? Will I follow my heart? Will I be true to myself? Or will I follow Jesus? Time and time again in the gospel, we hear, we hear Jesus say it. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And if you follow me, I'll lead you out of of your desperate situation, a situation you may not even realize you're in, the most desperate of all situations, is the fact that you're a sinner and that you're under the condemnation of death. And that's the promise he makes. He promises, and I benefit from that promise. We, We can make promises. Pretty much everybody in this room likely has made a promise at some point, and some of you have kept your promises, and, and some of you have not kept your promises, because as human beings, we, we can fail in that way. We've already talked about disappointing one another, and we can make promises and not keep those promises, but God holds the record for promise keeping. He's never failed, not even once, to keep a promise. He is unbeaten in the area of promise keeping, and he will in time fulfill all the promises that are not yet fulfilled. And he reminds them in verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, so they've come all the way through the wilderness, he gave them their land as an inheritance. The promise that was made to Abraham hundreds of years prior regarding the promised land, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And God gave them the land. Moses took them to the edge of the land. Joshua took them into the land uh, to seize it. And we see in this and in many other passages in the scriptures, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We utter our amen, our so be it. Make it happen, God. We agree. And this idea of God keeping his promises, it provides us with so much assurance, so much comfort, so much encouragement, especially for those who are struggling to make sense of life right now. For those who are battling some particular hardship, who are grieving, who are hurting, who are facing loss or have faced loss. God has made a promise to his own children that are, that's going to be fulfilled despite the current heartbreaks and harms that you may be experiencing. Because he promises, and I benefit. He promises, and you benefit. Notice, I, ho- I hope you're seeing it already in these first four. I hope you're seeing the verticality. That this is entirely about God. It's not our efforts. It's not what we're doing. It's what God has done and is doing for us. It's, it's pointing to the one who initiates. It's, it's pointing to the one who brings all of this about. He is the God who delivers. He delivers. And I am secure. He had, he had recounted at this point, verse 20 tells us about 400. He just zipped through 450 years of Israeli history. And then he says, after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And Samuel, uh, in a lot of ways, would be considered the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. They went through this period of judges. It was a time when God led his people directly. There was no government, but he would send these judges. It was the, the form of government was called a theocracy, God ruling them directly. He would send these judges or these God-appointed leaders, and they would be both a prophet and political leader. They would speak the word of God to the people to help them grow in their understanding of who their God was, but also he would work politically and and militarily to deliver them from their enemies. There are some harrowing stories in the book of Judges, all of which point to divine intervention through human agency. God used people. And the deliverance that he brought time and time again made them secure. It assured them that no matter what was happening around them, God was looking out for them. And I hope you're seeing that all of these descriptors are pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in his son, Jesus Christ. That's where Paul is heading toward in his sermon in that synagogue. The moment we express faith in Jesus Christ, the moment we confess our sins, the moment we see Jesus Christ is the only one who can deliver us from the curse of death. Our one true enemy. Paul said the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The moment that we do that is the moment that we gain this sense of security in who God is. And with death destroyed, we look forward to the day, as John wrote in Revelation 21, when the day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Amen? And if you have that kind of faith, then you're secure in the promise, and and you will be secure forever as of that day. We've made it through five. 
So this is a little advertisement, just a little break time right here. We just pause for just a second, catch our breath before we put the push on for the final five. We're more than halfway through time-wise, just so you know, because we had that whole introduction. Everybody still good? Okay. The sixth one's kind of interesting because as soon as I read it, you're going to know that this isn't exactly what it appears at first. He gives me what I want and I get what I deserve. Sometimes God gives me what I want, but in doing so, I get what I deserve. So this makes an assumption here that what I want isn't what's best for me. And this is exactly what Israel did in this next part of the sermon as, as Paul's preaching. And he says in verse 21, Israel asked for a king. And why they asked for a king? God was ruling them directly through these judges. It was a true theocracy with God directly giving them governance. But they looked around at the other nations. They said, look at all the other nations have kings. We want to be like the other nations. There's so many Christians like this where we go, you know, I'd like to be like the people who aren't Christians. I'd like to have some things that, that other people have. I'd like to be like them a little bit. And that's what Israel was saying. We want to be like the other nations. And God was like, I want to govern you as a, as a theocracy. I want you to be unique among the nations because I've chosen you as my special people and I've given you a mission in this world. And they were like, you know what? Just give us a king. We'd rather just have a king. So they asked for a king, verse 21, and God gave them what they wanted. They gave, he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, as their king. And he was their king for four decades, 40 years. And it wasn't great. More than, more than any of the other examples that Paul gives here, this, this one points to the biggest frustration with human agency. The biggest frustration with human agency is that we're, we're terrific sinners. And more often than not, we're going to mess it up. We're terrific sinners, and more often than not, we're going to mess it up rather than get it right. And, and we come back to it. This is God putting up with us. God just puts up with us. And to many, not all of the hard things that we face in life, many, not all, everybody hear me? <laughs> many, not all of the hard things we face in life are the result of choices that we've made and thus are the consequence of action or inaction on our part. We make a choice. Give us a king. So everything that comes after that decision to have the king, to be in charge, to have it our way, to have this thing that we just have to have that God doesn't want us to have, but he's going to give it to us. Everything that comes after that decision, it's all consequence. If it is less than God's best that you want, if it's less than God's best that you want, it may just be that God will give it to you so that you can see just how wrong you were. And God did that for Israel for 40 years so they could see it. And that would be a desperate and terrible place to be. Except that we see this next. He fixes it. He fixes all these messes that we make. And in, in him doing that, we see, we ought to see that we're loved. I'm loved. 
So God gave them Saul, verse 22. And when God removed him, he raised up David saying, I have found in David a man after my heart who will do all my will. And, and Paul here, he's drawing from three different scripture passages and pulling them together to make this statement about David. In other words, God didn't leave his people in this desperate state, even though they had chosen this for themselves, but he fixed the problem that they themselves had created. And in doing so, he showed them what unconditional love looks like. He loved them in spite of their stupidity. Aren't you glad? No, you ought to all be glad <laughs> that he loves you in spite of your stupidity. We went to church today and the pastor called us stupid. <laughs> he showed them grace and mercy. You've heard this definition we've used before. Don't know where it comes from. It's fabulous. But grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And God is pouring out grace and mercy on the nation of Israel and on us by giving David after Saul. Because sin is our doing. The mess in this world is the result of our choices. There are people out there in the world today that want to blame God for all of this. Why doesn't God intervene? And why does God allow this? And the world's so messed up, God could fix it all. He is. But don't blame him for it. We brought it upon ourselves. Humanity decided that we wanted to call our own shots. And it isn't working out at all. But God has fixed it and is fixing it. God has redeemed it and is redeeming it. God reversed it and is reversing it. And he's doing so simply. And this is where we come back to the fact that God is doing this. God is putting up with us by the sheer force of his character. Because the motivation behind all of this is that he loves us. It's John 3.16. God so loved the world, the mixed up, messed up, rebellious, we want a king, we want to do it our own way world. God so loved that world that he gave his one and only son, the son of David. What Paul's preaching. And in so doing, by communicating this, notice this next, he saves and I'm forgiven. Paul explains, verse 23, of this man's, uh, and he's speaking of David here, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, this is, this is the big reveal for the synagogue crowd, right? They're Jews. So they have a promise of Messiah. They know the scriptures and Paul has led them right to the point now where he's going to reveal to them the fulfillment of the scriptures that they have believed their entire lives. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus is the son or the descendant of King David. 
The promise actually goes back long before David, right back to Genesis 3, right back to the very moment that sin entered into the world where humanity made that choice. And God made an incredible promise, Genesis 3, 15, the first mention of the gospel. Right after we had messed up, we found out that eventually the serpent's head would be bruised. Yes, he would strike at the heel Yes, he would wound humanity and the Savior, but he would suffer the fatal headshot. The seed of the woman, seed of Eve, the son of David, would sacrifice his own life on the cross to provide the way for our sin to be forgiven and for us to be saved, for him to be our Savior. So the remedy is put right in front of us. And Paul has now proclaimed it to the synagogue crowd. And with that as the remedy, he then calls that there needs to be a response of faith. I must respond in faith. This is not automatically applied to every human being. God is kind enough, Paul says in his sermon, to call us to that salvation, to find the forgiveness of sin and the relief that comes with that forgiveness of sin. In fact, he says here that a messenger was sent and he's referring back to Malachi. The the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. And Malachi was the last of the writing prophets. And in Malachi chapter three, verse one, Malachi looks forward to another prophet who would come right at the moment that the Messiah comes. This messenger was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Verse 24, before Jesus coming, Paul says, John, this is John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people. So John the Baptist was, in essence, the last Old Testament prophet. We read about him in the New Testament, but he's the last Old Testament prophet and he's proclaiming the coming of Messiah, but he's doing it in real time because the Messiah was right there in front of them. And what John does is he tells us, this is the path. This is how you're going to come into relationship with the Messiah. And you're going to benefit from him. And he points us to the need of repentance. Repentance is I agree with God. And I make a turn from my way of doing things to his. I turn away from the world and I turn to him in faith. I bring no works because no works will benefit me. I bring no gifts because there's not a gift I could bring that would be enough. I bring no morality because I am a sinner and I confess it freely. And I bring no religion because religion benefits no one in any way with respect to God. I simply lay myself at his feet by faith alone, believing that he died for me, believing that he was resurrected from the dead for me and believing that he has called me to be saved. And because he does all of this, all these nine points that we've looked at, because he does all of that, look at this last one. He alone is worthy. And I am not at all. I'm not worthy of this. As Paul wraps up this first part of the sermon, and again, we'll look at 
the next part of the sermon, and then the response of the people in the next two messages. Paul says in verse 25, as John was finishing his course, his life, his ministry, his mission, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. You see, there were people who could have mistakenly believed that John was the Messiah. He had quite the following. People were leaving the cities and going down to the Jordan River to hear him preach. And and they responded uh, in droves and they were being baptized in the Jordan River. John could have in this moment established a mega church and become a celebrity pastor. Because he had the following. The people appreciated him for that. And he's so careful here that anyone would think in any way that he was the savior. No, he says, I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Jesus called this man the greatest born among women. And John never took that on himself, never had any ounce of pride about these things considered himself unworthy. A statement of such importance that all four gospel authors put it into their record. There's nothing in us that would commend us to God. This is what we need to hear. We're not worthy of any good thing. We spurned his love. We spurned his kindness. We rebelled against him. And even as Christians, we continue with these little microaggressions toward God these small rebellions that remain in our hearts and minds. And yet he loved us. We are not essentially good. We are full on sinners. And he loved us. And we praise him for he alone is worthy of our worship. And we are not at all deserving of the goodness of our God. And yet he is good, so good, so as to put up with us, so as to patiently put up with us as he does. What a great God we have. Amen? Amen. Amen. How good is he? We sang it earlier. In just a moment after I pray, the team's going to come up and lead us to sing that again. How good is he? Let's pray. Father, we want to have that in our minds as we think about this passage and what you've taught us today, what we've seen. Father, we think about that synagogue full of people hearing this word, hearing their own history, hearing these prophetic words brought down to the moment where they realize that it's Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would do that for every person in the room, every person who's watching on the live stream. Father, help us to consider all the words that we've heard here today and then to see that they all point to Jesus. And for those of us that are Christians who have walked with you for short and long times, Father, we all still have growth ahead of us. There's still things we need to repent of. And I pray that we'd be quick to repent of these things and to turn more fully to you. And God, I pray for any who might be watching and and here in the room, Father, who have not yet turned their life over to Jesus. And I pray that the words that would be ringing in their ears with everything else they've heard here today, I pray that they would hear the two words from Jesus. Follow me. 
and that they would repent of their sins and follow Jesus today. And this is his name that we pray this. Amen.